welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. We started a series last week called Reset. Started a series called Reset, and we were talking last week about how we we have to at times with our phones and with different devices, you have to reset them so that they work properly. We have to reset them so that things work in accordance to the way the designer created them to work, right? And so we have those moments. I talked about my phone and how it has all sorts of fun issues at times where it does not want to work correctly, and when I reset it and things go back to normal, and it starts to work and you know and function properly in the way it's supposed to. And so we talked last week about. About the need to reset our hearts and that at the end of it all, that, that our hearts need to be focused on in, in, in joyful appreciation of the salvation that God has given us. And we talked about how the Israelites treated the Ark of the Covenant and the, the presence of God with them as almost this, this genie in a box, right? And that, that he would show up, they would carry the Ark out to the battle, and then God in that moment was then miraculously going to show up in spite of how they've lived, in spite of what their heart has been conditioned towards and what they've been living as. That, you know what? We've not been living for the Lord. We we've turned our backs on God, but in this moment, we're going to just show up with the Ark, and he's just going to show up. And God said, no, no, that's not how I operate. He said, I want a fully committed and a fully surrendered heart. And so in that, we say, Lord, help us to fully surrender. And then we said, David cried and he prayed and in a moment. He said, Father, restore to me the joy of your salvation the joy of your salvation. So resetting our hearts so that our hearts are set and focused on on the love and the appreciation simply of the salvation we've been given and allowing that to be our sufficiency in in, in what we we seek from the Lord. That anything else is just simply blessing and added extras that, that, that it is not what we're after, but we are after the Lord, right? And what we're seeking God and his salvation. So we said reset our hearts. So this week, as, as we continue, we're going to talk about resetting our minds, and next week it'll be reset our hands. It's kind of this progression, right, from, from heart to mind to hands. And so, so as, as, we, as we talk about this, it was necessary for us to establish the baseline and the need for a reset heart so that from there that our minds could then be reset. How many of you know that the mind is powerful? How many of you know this? You talk to yourself more than you talk to anybody else during the day. It's okay to admit it, right? We all do it. So it's like, no, I don't talk to myself. What are you talking about? I don't have conversations with me. That's, that would be weird, right? No, we all do it. We all, we have these continuous and ongoing conversations throughout the day, right? We talk to ourselves constantly. And in that, sometimes that's a scary thing. And sometimes that can be a good thing, right? Because the mind is powerful, right? We can quickly discourage ourselves from doing things. We can quickly tear ourselves down, right? We can quickly then lead into to a place in our minds that, that are unhealthy. We can then lead to a place in our minds that are immoral. We can go places and do things in our minds because of the power of thought and the power that we have within the, 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 the skull of, on top of our body. There is some power within our minds that if left un, untouched, if left alone, could lead to our destruction. There is a, a book that I've read many, many, many times called The Seven, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And, and, and it is not a biblical book. It is not a spiritual book by any stretch of the imagination. It is a leadership development book. But he says this and he makes this statement that all things are created twice. 
there is a mental or first creation and a physical or second creation of all things. So what we, what we do is birthed first out of what we think. The way we respond, the way we react is birthed first and created first in the mind. Now, like I said, this is not like a biblical, uh, you know, theological statement. This is just an actual fact of the way we operate as human beings. That, that there has never been a moment in my life when my hand without my knowing did something. And then I turn around and go, oh! right? That doesn't happen, right? It comes from thought first, the way we respond, the words we say, the actions, what we pursue, what we seek after, all begins first and foremost in the mind. And so there are times when the mind gets off kilter and it doesn't function or think or work the way God has intended our minds to operate and work. And so in turn, it leads to more issues down the line. And so today I want to jump into Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there with us to Romans chapter 12. Uh, if, if there's anything you need to know, if, if you're new to uh, Christianity, if you're new to faith, uh, there's a couple of books from within the Bible that I would recommend to read. Romans is one of them. Uh, this is, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit, but this is a book by Paul that, that has one of the most, uh, the fullest written understandings of the gospel that you're going to find. And so here we go in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you, God, for this morning and this chance to study your word, God, so that it can change our hearts and change our lives. Father, we ask this morning that you will reset our minds. God, work through this word today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing here that we have to understand is that he says, therefore, there has to be an understanding of the context. Because if I was to come to you and, and, and just, just walk right up and say, now, therefore, avoid using 75 this week. You go, what? Because there's no context or, or pre-understanding as to therefore, what is the therefore speaking to or what is he referring to? What is like, did, he, did I miss a part of the conversation? Did he tell me prior to that, like, hey, there was a really bad accident. It took out seven bridges and the whole thing is shut down for the next eight and a half years. Therefore, avoid using 75. Now that makes more sense, right? And so and, and when we read this and we see this and, and understand this, we have to know that the context, we have to know the the historical background. We have to know who Paul is writing to and what he's writing about. If we try to just jump in and make assumptions based on what we read, we can come up with some pretty silly theology and doctrine. So let me, let me just sidebar here for a moment and tell you, if you are reading the Word of God, as you should be reading the Word of God, make that a part of your practice and how you read the Word of God is going, okay, what was happening in the moment? Who is he writing to? What are the issues he's actually addressing? And, and realize then that he, the author of, of whatever, and in this case it is he, it's Paul, the author is, is specifically writing to a 
person or a people and, and with, with, with issues or problems or things that he is working through or dealing with. So unless we read scripture within the context in which it was intended, we can come up with some really interesting doctrines. Do you want me to give you some, some, I'll give you one illustration, one example, right? Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep, right? And he says that, that the shepherd will leave the 99 to find the one, okay? So if we take that completely out of context and use it just as that, here's what we can gather from that, okay? And hear me, what I'm about to tell you is false doctrine. This is not what it means, okay? So this is just to make a point. So he leaves the 99 to find the one. So that tells me that Jesus as the shepherd, until we are all saved, he leaves every one of us and we don't have Jesus with us because he goes to find the lost one. And until the lost one comes back, none of us are with Jesus until we, no, see? So we have to know context and understanding because we clearly, know through scripture that when we have salvation, we have salvation, right? Like we have Jesus. So it's not this separation. So understanding the context of the scripture is vital and important. So know that that's my little sidebar and it helps to lead into where we're going to now. So we need to understand what is the therefore referring to before we go any further. So we need to understand this, that, that Paul at this point in the book of Romans is referring to everything that he had written prior to that in Romans. So chapters 1 through 11 lead to this therefore moment. So if you look at the book of Romans, it flows as this one continuous thought that, that keeps moving and it, and it is broken into different sections. Now you're not going to find broken into sections, but you'll find different themes written out within these different parts. And, and it makes this beautiful kind of flow and this understanding. This is, again is Paul's fullest uh, um, understanding of the gospel that he's written anywhere in scripture. So you'll find that chapters one through four are kind of a, a section, chapters two through eight, chapters nine through 11 and 12 through 18 are kind of broken into these four different areas and flows of thought. And so we're gonna lead all the way up to the last area today as, as we kind of make an understanding of what's going on. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, hence the name Romans. In case, so there you go, that's where you have that. And so the church in Rome was already pre-established. It's not a church that, that Paul started. We know it's pre-established because it's mentioned in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts talks about the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was made up of, of Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. And so here they, they are kind of, kind of working together and figuring out this new faith together and this new Christian world together. And at some point in time, the Roman emperor Claudius said, every Jewish person must leave, whether they were a Jewish Christian or non-Jewish Christian or, or, or not Jewish or, or not Christian. They had, every Jewish person had to go, right? Let's just leave it like that because I'm clearly messing myself up really well right now. Every Jewish person had to leave, okay? So they were gone for a while. And when they came back, they found that the, the church had become very non-Jewish, and the Jewish people that came back, the Jewish Christians came back, and they didn't exactly appreciate that. So they started saying, no, you need to eat kosher foods. You need to be circumcised. You need to, like, all these different things. Like, this is, you need to do this. You need to keep. And so they were talking and going through the laws of Moses and, and what had been given and saying, this is, needs to be how you live. And the, the, non, the non-Jewish Christians were like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We have freedom in Christ. And, and, and we have this, you know, it's, so there was this, this kind of back and forth and a struggle. And so Paul says, I'm going to write a letter 
And we're going to try to solve this issue. We're going to try to, to bring this back together. And so here we go. Let's go through the fastest uh, synopsis of the first 11 chapters without missing too much that we could possibly have. And I see some people looking at me like, yeah, right. And I'm thinking the same thing. It's good. So the first thing is this, the very first section, chapters one through four, is this, the gospel reveals God's character is what Paul is saying in this first bit. So chapter one, he basically says this, that all humanity is trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. Verse 29 actually says, they have been filled with every kind of wickedness. And then he goes on to list all the kinds of wickedness that they have been filled with, right? As you, as you read through this. So Paul, in the very first part of Rome, Romans, is, is he's writing and he says, listen, the earth is full of sinners. We, we are full of wicked people and we've been f- we're full of every kind of wickedness. In the second chapter, he says this, that rescue won't come by trying to obey the laws of the Torah, by trying to just follow the laws given to Moses, you're not going to be rescued. You can't be good enough. And so this is what Paul is trying to express to him. Like, okay, you Jewish believers hear me when I say this, you know, the law will not save you. You're not gonna be rescued by the law. So this is where he's working through this. And then chapter three is this, that God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. Now with the famous verse we love to quote is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that one gets used often. And for some reason, I don't know why that we don't then continue because verse 24 says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, the idea in chapter three is not to just point out the sin that we have, but to point out the freedom and the justification that we have through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. So God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. Chapter four is the idea is that that he's saying God has done this to create this faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham. And he talks about how how God told him that his, he would have like the descendants of, of of all the world, right? You know, just all over the world. This is done through the faith in Jesus Christ. We become a part of the family of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham and the, the descendants that are as numerous as the stars and the grains of sands on the beach, right? And all of that is through, and as Paul writes us in chapter four, through our faith in Christ together. So then he shifts in chapter, uh, chapter five. And so this next section is five through eight. It says the gospel creates a new humanity. So the gospel reveals the, our sinful nature uh, and it reveals God's character. And then here we have God, the gospel creates a new humanity. And so here's just a, a, a quick, just theological explanation of chapter five is this, that justification by faith creates a new humanity. So Paul goes all the way back to look at the first human recorded, which would be Adam. And the word Adam actually means humanity. So he talks about this original humanity and how sinful and how selfish the original human uh, nature is. And that beyond Adam, all people walked in the same flesh in sinfulness that Adam himself created and, and, and walked in, right? Because it's speaking to the sinful nature of humankind. If you look around, if you watch the news ever for like three minutes and you're sending your children out of the room because that's how we are like, oh, no, 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 just go. You don't need to see this right now. Somebody may get shot in the face and I don't want you watching, right? So the, the world is a sinful place. Human nature is in fact 
sinful. And that is, that is what it is. And that, this is the old humanity, right? So Paul is talking about Adam. And he says, this is this, this selfish, uh, selfish uh, mindset of humanity. This resulted in slavery and death. Uh, he said, then he contrasts Adam with Jesus. And then Jesus is the new Adam. And so Paul writes, he says, he is the, the, the vision or the embodiment of a new humanity. Jesus is not the same as Adam. He is the new Adam. So Christ being fully God and fully man then presents a new way to be human, as Switchfoot would have said. Just making sure some of y'all caught that. <laughs> That's not in my notes. Jesus lived as a human in faithful obedience to God while still maintaining his God nature and character. Jesus offers his life to others so they too can be justified. It was his, his human nature that carried our sin and his God nature that was able to defeat it. Chapter six, Paul tells us that choosing Jesus means to leave the old humanity. And this was signified through water baptism, right? So he talks about the submersion and going under and coming up. So it's death to the old humanity and new life with Jesus. This is important to the, the, the Roman believers at this time because it, it, it showed their new allegiance and their new found uh, alignment with Christ, saying, I, I now reject the old nature. I now reject humanity as it was, and I now come to life again in Christ, choosing this new life. So in Jesus, we are liberated to love God and neighbor. So this is what Paul is dealing with, right? There's this conflict between the two. And he says, now through Christ, you have the liberty. You are liberated. You are freed to love God fully. And you are also freed to love your neighbor. So it's this kind of this, this bringing both sides together. And then chapter seven, if, if, if Jesus came and did it all, then what was the point of the law in the first place? When Paul uses the word law, there's, there's two options that he uses. And so one would be uh, a kind of a reference to the, the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, right? And it could just be meaning the, the historical nature and everything pertained within those books. And, or he can mean the actual 613 rules and laws, commandments that were given to the Jewish people. And in this case, he means those 613 commandments that were given to walk by. And some of you are going, 613? I thought there was only 10. They Bounded on them later to say, okay, to help you maintain this one, we're going to give you, you know, 50 other things to do so that you don't break this one, right? So in the end, they ended up with 613 rules and commandments. Could you imagine living under that kind of weight? And so they're going, then what was the point of the law in the first place? And Paul says, it's really simple. It was there to show you and reveal to us how depraved we are as people. He says, we're guilty. He said, without the law, we wouldn't understand how guilty we were. If there, was no, if there were no laws or rules to abide by, if there was just, just absolute chaos and anarchy, there would be no, no punishment or no, 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 no pain or guilt for what was done. He said, the, through the law, we recognize and realize the guilt and the shame that we carry. And then comes Romans chapter 8. Hmm. 
I have a deep affection for the words in Romans chapter 8. I want you to know that. <laughs> because in Romans chapter 8, the solution has arrived. He talks about how, how we are no longer, uh, uh, we're more than conquerors. That, that, that There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And the solution is Jesus and the spirit that dwells within us, the, the spirit of Jesus that comes so that we can now fully walk in and truly live out this life that, that chooses the new humanity over the old humanity. So the law reveals our guilt, but Jesus took it for us. And through salvation, through the Spirit, we're able to walk according to the Word of God. It's only by the Spirit that we're able to truly love God and love neighbor. And then chapters 9 through 11, I told you this was actually pretty quick, because I have a whole lot of other stuff to talk about. It says God will fulfill his promise to Israel in those chapters. That's what he talks about is they go, well, how does, how then if, if Jesus was sent, then, then how does this fulfill the promise to Israel if they're God's chosen people? And he says, no, 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 no. So don't, don't, don't misinterpret this. See, God, God's promise to Abraham was greater than just his direct descendants. In fact, if you look at the lineage of Abraham, not every part of the lineage of Abraham is considered the children of God, right? So as you go down the line, there was, there were those that, that were cast off. You go, okay, so there's the Ishmael side and then they're done. You know, so you go down the line, this way, all the way to the point of those who have chosen Christ and become a part of the lineage by accepting and choosing Jesus as the Messiah. He says, so through this, the promise to Israel is in fact fulfilled. The promise made to Abraham is fulfilled because it is the, the choosing of the descendant, his, the, the, Jesus, the Messiah, that we are now a part of, and then we all become descendants of Abraham. All of that leads us to the moment of therefore. That's what's wrapped up in that word in a nutshell. If God had not done what he did for us, there would be no compelling reason why we should now do what he says. The dynamic of God's ethical instruction arises from its logical and necessary relationship to who he is and what he has done on our behalf. So Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Therefore, everything we just read, chapters 1 through 11, everything building up, because of everything Christ has done for you, because of all of this, now I urge you. Let's talk about this. Let's walk through this today, um, kind of not quite word by word, but, but kind of close to that. We're going to walk through this. So I urge you. The word urge is, is a Greek word that means to plead with. It, it, when we hear urge, it's, it almost feels like a subtle push. But, but Paul here is in a sense like, I beg of you, I plead of you, please, please, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
He's saying, I urge you, I plead with you. This is a, a stronger word than what we recognize it as just in our simple use of English today. This is a, a much more, more heartfelt, much more emotional pull that Paul is giving us saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. Now, had we not gone through chapters 1 through 11, we may have missed the depth of God's mercy as he's just laid it out for us. And mercy is his compassion for us. I plead with you in view of the compassion of God. He's saying, since you can now see the compassion of God, since you can now see the mercy of God, since I've just walked with you through all of the mercy of God, the fact that the law revealed to us the depravity of of our sinful nature, since the law revealed to us our guilt and our shame, and then since Jesus died for us and since we receive Christ, since you see the mercy of God, since you see the compassion of God, he said, I plead with you. Since you see it, understand it, know the depths of it, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Present your body as living sacrifices. Now, for this generation in this time period, the idea of, of, of sacrifice was not like this, this foreign concept or something that would be kind of like, well, what do you mean by sacrifice? Because in that world, and not just the Jewish world, but in pagan religions as well, there was a, a constant use of animal sacrifice, right? It happened all the time. So the imagery and the ideology was, was not like this stretch to think or imagine. And so when Paul says, present your body as living sacrifices, they could immediately go to a time when either they were a Jewish child growing up, when they offered a sacrifice uh, on the altar, or, or pa- possibly in a pagan religion of the, the non-Jews where they also offered an animal sacrifice to their gods or something of that nature. So this understanding or this idea of, of sacrifice would be easier to understand then for you and I to fully grasp because we don't necessarily make animal sacrifices. And if we do, we need to talk and pray um, and read the Bible together because it's not needed. So the idea of, of saying, okay, I want you to lay your life as a sacrifice would, would conjure up some pretty heavy feelings because they go, I know what the process of sacrifice is. And so to say that I'm supposed to lay my life as a living sacrifice means that, that I'm supposed to essentially subject myself to possible pain, to, to possible to be hurt, all for the sake of worshiping God, all for the sake of giving my life as worship unto the Lord. Here's a, a little misconception about the gospel and when we tend to do this is that Jesus comes to make your life better here on earth so that you get what you want now. When you want it, how you want it. The reality is, is Jesus came to save your soul. Does he want you to be happy? Yes. Does Jesus want to, to, to give blessing? Yes. Is all of that in the word of God? Absolutely. But is his first and foremost priority your comfort on earth? Not even close. He's more concerned about your soul and he's more concerned about your eternity than he is whether or not you get a new car. Does that make sense? Is that fair? And so, so this is the idea that, 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 that sometimes when we lay our lives as living, when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, there may be some discomfort in the process. And in America, we don't like to talk about that. That sometimes 
the gospel requires more of us than we wanted to give in the first place. And that's difficult. Because that means I don't get what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Paul says, offer your body as living sacrifices. Our bodies uh, would imply, this implies whole selves. When he says our bodies, it's not just like the physical, just lay your physical self down. But he means your mind, your soul, your, your physical, every part and every aspect of your being, all of us. Not just, not just some of us or part of us. He says, offer your whole selves as living sacrifices. This goes back to the, the, the new humanity in Christ, right? This goes back to we're laying down the old humanity. We're laying down the old self, and in turn, we are picking up this new self in Christ, this new humanity that, that we are dying to selfish, sinful humanity that we once were. So how is this done? Choosing to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. Living life that is fully dedicated to the Lord. The next statement says, this is your true and proper worship. The King James says it this way. I don't ever pull out King James, so you just, you know. It says this, it says, reasonable service. There's a theologian that calls this intelligent worship. There's something to be said of consciously choosing to do right. In view of God's mercy. He says, in view of God's mercy, since you see the mercy of God, Present yourself then as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your reasonable service. This is intelligent worship in the sense of I am choosing with my mind, I'm making the choice to follow Christ in the way I live in all moments and all times. I am laying down myself and my, and my desires and, and what I want to do in order to please the Lord, to pursue God and to choose him in all things. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. He's like, and, and we could get into the whole of, of all of that, that, that and what he was speaking there, but understanding this, that he says, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Just pursue the glory of God in all things. Do whatever you can to bring glory to God. He says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's talk for a minute about the pattern of this world. This would again go back to the old humanity, right? And the, the original Adam. This is that pattern. And he, he showed that that way was insufficient, that that way led to, to death, it led to slavery, it led to, it led to, to horrible and moral decisions, it led to a wickedness amongst the people, it led to depraved minds. In fact, that's one of the phrases he uses in, in Romans chapter one, and he says that God had gave them over to a depraved mind. He finally said, you are so far gone, I'm gonna let you walk in your depravity fully. Just run with that thought. Because at this point, you have fully rejected me. So he says, he gives them over to a depraved mind, right? So this is what the old pattern has led to. 
And so we see that today in this world still, what, what, what the, the old pattern of the world does. It, 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 doesn't, uh, it doesn't bring full, uh, you know, fullness. It doesn't bring happiness con- that, that is sustainable. It, it, it ultimately ends up and leads to our destruction, right? And yet, time and time again, we find ourselves getting sucked back into the old pattern of the world. And he's saying, don't conform to that pattern any longer. Push away from the way they want to do things. Don't, don't run into that. Don't pursue that. And I find that, that, that today's Christianity and this American theology we live in, we've almost tried to merge the pattern of the world with the gospel. Because we want Jesus, but we want what we desire as well, because it goes back to this selfish mindset of give me what is rightfully mine. Give me what I think should be given to me, right? And and we've done it and not intentionally. I don't think any one of us goes, I want Jesus and I want Jesus to give me what I want now, right? It's it's, It's not how we pursue it. It's not what we strive for, but yet we find ourselves slowly getting pulled back into the pattern of this world. And at times we find that it tries to get masked with Jesus. And he's saying, be done with the pattern of this world. He says, do not conform to the pattern. The word conform, uh, it means to model or copy a behavior, right? It, it, is, it, it is, so it's like saying, I'm gonna look at something and I'm gonna try to replicate that. I'm gonna pursue what they pursue. I'm gonna run after what they run after. I'm gonna do it in the way they do it so that in the end, hopefully, I receive what I want on the back end, what I have earned, what I deserve, right? Now, that is not to say that working hard is a bad thing and being blessed is a bad thing. Understand me, the gospel makes room for those things. Hear me, hear me. But, but when we treat it as if I want Jesus because he will give me this, 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 and this, that is merging the pattern of this world with the gospel. And Jesus is saying, no, it should be me me, period. He's saying, don't conform to the pattern of this world any longer so that we're seeking out the sinful and the selfish things, right? He's saying, so be done with those. Don't model after that behavior. He says, but be transformed. And this is where the good news comes, right? I think I find in so many scriptures, it starts out so heavy. Like, we are just terrible people. We're never going to make progress. And this is all bad. And we are doomed for hell. Is there any hope? And then there's hope. And there's grace. It says, how do we do this? By being transformed by the renewing of our minds. There's a substantial difference between conforming and transforming. As we said, conforming is kind of modeling and, and, and trying to replicate and, and duplicate what we see. The word transforming here, this is where it's really, really cool, actually means this, is allowing God to make us what we need to be. Allowing God to shape us. It says, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This word transform really does speak to the deity at work, to God at work, and not a work on our own where we are trying to renew our minds ourselves. So we're like, all right, today on my own, I'm gonna shift my thinking and I'm gonna be done and separated from the old and I'm only pursuing the new humanity. I'm only seeking Jesus now. See, it doesn't work in that way. So Jesus in the word of God makes room for that. It says, listen, be transformed in the word 
means that allow God to shape and, and, and fix and put things in place. And how many of you say amen to that? Because if it was up to me, I would be in a world of hurt and my mind would never be renewed. There would never be transformation because I cannot make it happen on our own. This is good news for us. The word renewed means that our minds are to become new and different. New and different. So there's, I, I remember this moment when I got the very first iPhone. It was in 2007, and Lauren and I were actually really poor, and uh, we were associate youth pastors. That's right, associate youth pastors, which meant there was a youth pastor above us. <laughs> Man, you talk about low on the totem pole. It was, uh, we were at the bottom, and I joke, but it's a true story. The maintenance man at the church made more money than I did. So it's, uh, that's a true story. Uh, it's just the way it was, right? We had nothing. A kid in our youth ministry entered this contest where they made a video and it was like some, it had to be like this, there was a theme and it was a biblical theme and they had to create a video. And it was this huge, massive event that we were going to. Thousands of students were going to this event. I mean, there was gonna be 13,000 kids from all over the US at what we called National Youth Convention. And we were going to this deal. And apparently nobody knew about the contest, but three people. And the winner, because this is the iPhone first came out, the winner got an iPhone for themselves, for their youth pastor, and for what we call our district youth director, okay? At the time, our youth pastor had just resigned and gone to another church. So guess who was left in charge? This young guy making nothing, right? So, so we go, and so we, he wins, and we're like, what in the world? So we, I was like, I get an iPhone. Well, then we get this iPhone, right? And, and at the same time, then the price dropped when they first did that with this, this thing with AT&T. It was awesome. So I got the iPhone. Then the price dropped. We got money back. And that money back that we got, because they reimbursed us for the original purchase, then bought. So we both got iPhones also. So you talk about new and better. We went from, we went from just these regular little phones that didn't do anything and that was awful. And it was like, oh, man. I mean, they, they made the call and that was kind of about it. And then we got these new phones. And it wasn't just new. It was better. So it was like, whoa, not only can I play snake if I, if I want to, now I can actually go, you know, check my email and I can do other things. All this is a new and better. So that's what Jesus is saying. Be transformed be re, by the renewing of your mind. So it's not just a new mind. It's not like, hey, this does the same thing in a newer model. It, it is now new and different. It is new and better. Like all of a sudden, the functionality and the way that it operates is in line with what God has for you and how he wants you to be so that you are transformed by the way your mind thinks and operates and works and moves. And so this is, this is incredible for us because of what it leads to in the end because now that the ill or evil thoughts, the immoral ideas and those things are easier to keep at bay because your mind has been renewed and transformed. It is no longer the same. It is now new and better. Last week we said that Jesus, we said reset our hearts. And we say, Jesus, we need you to reset our minds. We get our hearts set right, then our minds can be renewed. So therefore, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't fall back to that old human nature, but step into the new humanity that Christ has for you. I'll invite the worship team. And he ends with this. He says, then you will be able to test and approve 
what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's always a need to know how God is leading us. We always need to be pursuing the will of God, right? And, and trying to figure out, Lord, what are you wanting of me? What are you speaking to me? How are you shaping me? How are you transforming me? What are you leading me into? But it's not until we reset our minds that we can fully know and find the will of God. He says, let your mind be renewed, and out of that renewal, you will be able to test and approve the will of God. Test and approve is, 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 a, is a Greek word that means to put it to the test, to know for certain. God's desire for you is that you would know him fully and know his will for your life. And that comes through the resetting of our minds, the renewing of our minds and saying, God, make it new and make it better. And the greatest part in all of that is that he is the only one able to do the work. And it's just when we stop and we step back and we say, God, there are things in my mind that I know are not right. There are things in my mind that, that lead to things that, that need to be addressed, that lead to things that need to be fixed, that lead to things that are wrong, that lead to actions and behaviors that aren't right. So we say, God, we need you to reset our minds. We need you to renew my mind because I am incapable on my own. I can try and I can try and I can try, but all I am doing is conforming. And if I'm, I can try to conform to the pattern of the world, I can try to conform to the word of God, but, but unless it is a transformation, unless it is a transforming work, of the Holy Spirit, we will never get it right. We'll never get it right. As much as we want to think we can, as much as we try to, to pursue, but here's what I've found is that when we fully surrender to Jesus and we look back at the, all of Romans and we say, okay, I'm a sinner. I'm aware of the guilt and shame in my life. I'm not capable of ever being good enough and it is only by Jesus, and it is only through the blood of Christ, through his death and his resurrection, and my faith in that, that I can be saved. And it is only through that, that then God can begin to transform and renew my mind. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you use your word to lead us, that you use your word to guide us and to direct us. And God, I thank you that it is not up to us to make it happen. Lord, when I think about the impossibility of trying to fix it on my own, and I think about the fact that you have given grace and you've given your spirit, so that I don't have to do the work, but that you do it when I give you the freedom to do so. When I step aside, when I let go and say, God, transform me. Let me be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Let me be transformed by the renewing of my mind. God, in that moment, you have the access you need to do whatever you want to do in me. So God, this morning, 
we stop for just a moment with every head bowed and every eye closed and we just begin to say, oh God, let me be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Let me be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.